Tupac Shakur is regarded by many as one of rap's most celebrated artists. The musician, poet, dancer, actor, and activist, known for the tattoo thug life spelled out on his stomach, expressed gritty street life, political activism, and messages of hope in both his life and lyrics. Tupac Shakur was killed in a drive-by shooting in 1996 in what's still an unsolved case. Yet years after his death, Tupac's influence continues to grow. Case in point, joining me in the studio are two people who helped bring a new musical based on Tupac's songs to Broadway. My name is Todd Kreidler. I'm the writer for the musical Holler If You Hear Me. I think bringing Tupac's music to Broadway means giving him the right platform that he deserves as an artist in America. So, you know, people have a lot of ideas, I think, about what his music is. I mean, of course, the fan base knows what it is, but I think there's a general American idea of who Tupac is. And I think that, in a way, this musical is a redress of that. My name is Saul Williams, and I'm an actor playing John Cavanis in the musical Holler If You Hear Me. The story of Holler If You Hear Me uh, surrounds the character that I play, John Cavanis, who's just been released uh, from a prison bid and moves back to his old community where uh, he encounters old friends, old loves, and tries to, I guess, distract himself from his old ways. It's a love story between friends and lovers, and essentially because that's also not necessarily what the the story 100% revolves around. It revolves around bigger questions than that. But having to deal with that and then having to deal with the realities of, you know, say a, a, a prisoner coming out of prison and having to find work. And who wants to hire a prisoner? Not every place hires a prisoner. And so those are real questions, real life situations. As Todd said, it's something that really resonates deeply with me um, in terms of, you know, looking at the criminal justice system, looking at the options that confront young people in America, impoverished, disenfranchised people, unheard voices. The play itself really circles around questions that we need to be questioning on a daily basis in America. And it does so brilliantly, and Tupac is the perfect catalyst for this discussion just because of who he was and is symbolically as, as you know, the child of revolutionaries who grew up in this heightened political environment um, that informed him so heavily even as a kid, you know, as he studied, you know, theater and ballet and became a member of the Young Communist Party and all this stuff. It's quite different from, you know, the, the typical story that you might expect from a rapper, he was someone who, who really had an insightful perspective into America because, quite frankly, his parents were subject to COINTELPRO, which is to say that they were labeled as terrorists by their own government for fighting for civil rights, you know, for being part of the black power and civil rights movement. It informed who he was completely. And then when he had to enter that criminal justice system, you know, he was able to look at the belly of the beast, you know, from the belly of the beast. So when you look back at Tupac, you know, look back at even at images of Tupac, there's some things that should stand out to you. Like you look at images of Tupac in 92, 93, when the big truce between the Bloods and Crips were happening, you know, and you can watch Tupac living in L.A., talking about living in L.A., one day in a picture with a red bandana, next day in a picture with a blue bandana. How powerful was that? How, what was he saying in that message? You know, I mean, like, it's amazing. And the play itself, we don't get into any of that. But we get into all of that, in a way, by having the words of Pac 
in, you know, the mouths of young women, older women, older men telling this story, but using Tupac's verse and words, it brings out something not only about America, but also something about Pac that, mm. that many Americans, perhaps, you know, who are not part of the fan base, wouldn't recognize. Wouldn't recognize. And the fact of the matter is that Tupac was as much of a beautiful poet as Kurt Cobain, for example, who died at the same time. And really, because of his position in life, because he was not born blonde-haired and blue-eyed and beautiful, he had an even deeper glimpse into, as I said, the belly of the beast. And so what he was able to speak on really resonates to me like Rimbaud resonates for the French and for the people who, who understand and, and relate to poetry. Like there's a, there's a divine irreverence in, in, in what he had to say, and it comes out, it shines through Holler, if you hear me. So you said it was a love story, but to me, seeing the play, seeing the production, felt like it was even a love story for the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So yes. So what was the process for taking Tupac's songs and turning them into this, this incredible story? Uh, the process of, of writing this was living in the material in a non-schematic way. I knew to pull this off, that the story had to come within. So my collaborator was not here, and I never wanted to sort of have a story and then cut up Tupac to fit in it. I was, it didn't make any sense to me, and it's not what I, you know, why I love the material. Why do you love the material? I have to say my true love of Tupac goes back to August Wilson, who um, I had a, you know, Tupac's three year, would have been three years older than me, so I was in the generation. I knew, you know, I knew the music you know, from the radio, but I was not, you know, deeply engaged in it. And you weren't a uh, Tupac scholar. No, I was not a Tupac scholar. And I had a moment about 13 years ago when I was working with August Wilson on his play, King Headley II, and we got into a discussion about Tupac's song, Dear Mama. And he said, you know, man, he said, Pac wrote this song about his mother, blah, blah, blah. And then he looked at me and he said, he said, you know, Dear Mama. And I said, well, yeah, I know the song. He said, no, no, man, do you, I mean, really, do you know he's writing about his mother, but he's writing about, and I said, well, August, said, ah, nah. and he jumped up from the Cafe Edison, went across the street to um, Virgin Records and went downstairs and got me, me against the world, he handed me the CD. And I said, thank you. And he still hasn't said anything to me other than, you don't know Dear Mama, hands me the CD. We're walking to rehearsal for Broadway, and he stops in front of the Hotel Edison and said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to rehearsal. And he said, no, man. He said, man, he said, you don't understand what you have in your hands there. He said, there's nothing in your life that isn't touched by this music. He said, there's love, honor, duty, betrayal. He said, there's a people, there's a community. He's like, there's a whole universe in this music, and you need to find out what it is before you step back into rehearsal. So I dutifully went up to my room, 749 Edison Hotel, got on my Sony Discman, no iPod in 2001, and I listened to the tracks, you know, four times. Of course, I listened to Dear Mama about eight times. <laughs> and then, um, and then I, I, I listened to that album four or five times, and then I hit rehearsal, and he looked at me, and he nodded, and then we went upstairs in the roof and talked about Tupac for four hours. And so that experience of that day, what I, unlocking that music 13 years ago for me, and the universe that I felt was the seed for eight years after that moment when a FedEx box arrived with 23 CDs, a book of poetry, and go write a Tupac musical. Arrived from where? Um, arrived from our producer, Eric Gold, who had been trying to bring Tupac to Broadway, I think for 14 years, I'm not sure, 12, 14 years, for a long time. And the first thing I wrote on my on my yellow tablet was, Dear Mama, will be in this musical. <laughs> I knew that. 
Um, and so take me back to that experience. After you listened, let's say, the first time to Dear Mama, uh-huh. did you get it? Did you have to listen eight times? Oh, no, no, go, no, 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 well, no. wait a minute. No. Uh, you know, did you analyze it? Did you, did you dance does. to it? No. You can play that right now, and every one of your li- listeners, regardless of age or background, would understand everything they need to understand about the vulnerability that Pac held within um, if you played Dear Mama. Honestly, I mean, to me, what's amazing about that story, which I love hearing, which really connects me even more deeply to how beautifully written uh, this piece is by Todd, is that if August Wilson, you know, someone who's who's more than uh, incredible playwright, who's who's more than one generation older than Tupac, can hear and recognize who Tupac is. Last night, you know, uh, uh, I watched um, on YouTube Ruby D who yeah. just passed uh, her performance on Deaf Poetry Jam, where she performed a poem entitled Tupac, about Tupac. And once again, someone else, I mean, she was 91 when she passed. If someone else, once again, more than one or two generations older than Tupac can recognize who Tupac is, that means that you can too. You know, like if, if August Wilson and Ruby Dee are saying, hey, right. hey, hey, maybe you need to uh, check out what this is. Because they're not saying the same thing about, you know, every rapper that you're hearing on the radio out there. You know, there's lots of rappers who have lots of sales who, 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 who you know, really wouldn't necessarily be worthy of the same level of attention that's being given to this young man's journey and story and, and, and work. And that's part of the question I have. Um, out of all the rappers, some were even more political than Tupac back in the day. Why do you think he has garnered so much uh, passion, so much longevity? Well, for me, what I would say is this, is that, you know, you asked earlier uh, about how it's not just about a love story and it seems to be about a love of community, you know? Talk about Tupac's passion. When I think of that, I think of like, let's say, Smokey Robinson versus Marvin Gaye, you know? Smokey Robinson wrote amazing love songs about, you know, women, straight up love songs. And that's where you can see where his passion was. Marvin Gaye wrote amazing love songs about women, about earth, about the community, about the times he was living in. And you saw a, a, a resonance of passion. It's the same thing, you know, the next generation would say Maxwell versus D'Angelo. And it's the same thing. In Maxwell, you'll hear this sort of love that goes directed towards women. Whereas with D'Angelo, you can find it towards women, towards the community, towards... And Tupac had that same sort of thing where it wasn't just about that he could reach deep inside and write a love song for some girl he wanted to sleep with. He could do it for his mother. He could do it for, you know, his first song was Brenda's Got a Baby, which is a, a fictitious song about a young black girl who's who's teenager who's pregnant you know like he was focused on so many aspects of the community he was in love with the community so it's not a stretch for Todd to be able to bring this out you know necessarily of Tupac's work because Tupac had that love of community that and and for that reason I think and it's not to say that other rappers don't or haven't had that it's just that he was so prolific. Um, also, his his background informed him so much. He was so articulate yeah. and clear and such an authentic artist. You know, you think of someone um, like Chuck D, 
for example, from, um, public, from public Enemy, Enemy, who, of course, has an extremely politically informed background, as we can hear through his music. But you don't see Chuck D acting in films. You don't hear Chuck D just out reciting poetry. You, don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's so many. Look at the films that Tupac did. Tupac was an artist, an all-around artist, you know, with an agenda, who realized the power of the microphone, who realized the power of his presence. And his words. And, and his words. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon discussing the Broadway musical Holler If You Hear Me with lead actor Saul Williams and playwright Todd Kreidler. The play uses the songs of rapper Tupac Shakur to explore a non-biographical story about friendship, love, change, and life in the inner city streets. So one of the most powerful scenes to me in, in the production, Holler If You Hear Me, was when Saul, your character, John, gets a job at an auto body shop. And he begins a discussion with Griffey, the, um, the owner's son, and it becomes a very heated dispute uh, about the amount of money in John's first uh, check that was printed out by a computer. And um, Griffey kept trying to say, well, you know, it's the computer's problem. You know, we're having trouble with the computer. The computer is the one that, mm -hmm. you know, put out the money and, and we're still working on the computer. You can't change the system. You yeah. can't change the system. Now, to me, that that was very powerful. <laughs> the system is locked. Because it was not about that particular computer. Todd, what were you thinking when you wrote that scene? I can't go to exactly where I was when that moment came, but I knew that I was looking for ways, again, to make the personal political. I knew that there was big arms for Tupac's material, and I wanted to try to honor people like Saul and fans and people who love the music, but also bring bring new ears to this because I feel like Tupac deserves it. I also feel like he he brings up a conversation we need to have in America because, you know, these, these, you know, these patterns, these cycles keep repeating themselves and the criminal criminalization of these young black men in the story. We just, it just, it, it keeps happening again and again and again. And I think there's a way in which people don't understand. They don't understand as, as August wrote about our legacy, our connection to slavery and August embraced that in his play. He just said, that's, he says, that's our history. We have to embrace it to understand this country. So I sort of, from my vantage, em embraced that and said, how can I, you know, how can I have a personal relationship? So you have these two guys. Saul and I were talking about this in the car. You have these two guys who, in this final scene, actually lay the roots or seeds of a friendship, but they come to a place of this divide. I feel like there's a divide in America. There's two countries. They have different rules for different people. And there's a way that we don't understand each other. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to bring that con that conversation on stage with sort of bearing the political and the personal, if you know what I mean. So making it about this, his system. But it, I think it's very clear to the audience when he's getting up that it's a much bigger thing that he's up against. Because Griffey, the, the owner's son, who has a more affluent a background than, than your character, Saul, who had been in jail and, and had been from the inner city, was asking questions that maybe, you know, someone with a more affluent background might ask. Well, why is there black-on-black -black crime, you know, so mm -hmm. to speak. Right. Uh, of course, you wrote it way more poetic than I'm saying it, but why are black people killing each other? Why are they destroying their neighborhoods? 
And you never really answered the question, but you started the discussion. What did you think about that scene? Because you played it so powerfully, Saul. For me, you know, like, when I was reading the script for the first time, uh, well, not for the first time, because the first time I thought, oh, this is excellent. But once I was cast and I reread it, and I was like, oh, I get to say who set the system on stage? <laughs> <laughs> who set the system? Like, I was like, oh, yeah, I can't wait. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, because that's the thing is that, you know, a play like this sets you up to be able, when, it, when a play like this sets you up to be able to convey real questions, real emotions, real ideas that you identify with. I thought, yes, exactly. You know, the old church lady and me was saying, amen, amen. <laughs> <laughs> so when you wrote it, Todd, did you did you get it on the first try? Did you have, you know, uh, influence from other people? Did you run it past other people and say, you know, hey, does this make sense or does this? No? Um, nuances of it. I mean, I mean, I always wrestled with in the storytelling, making it clear that he's just not mad about the check. So, so I would say that there are details in the writing but um but i would say the architecture of it was there from from the beginning i knew i knew i was going from i set myself up to write a scene where you lay the seeds of a friendship and then these two men get blown as far apart as you can get so that dynamic uh um was there um his speech there's a speech about the candy bar that mm -hmm. was in there from the beginning um so I would say, again, you know, once you get it up on his feet, you learn different things just about the, um, how it plays, what reads. So there's, a, there's that kind of work. But I always say I wrote, I mean, I wrote 80% of this in a fit of blood and tears in like four months, four years ago. And then it's taken another four years to get that other 20%, which some of that is just the mechanism of storytelling and, and, and that kind of work. But I've never had an experience before where, I've cried so much when, when I've written. I mean, I just lived in my headphones. My wife told me later in my office she could hear me. I didn't know I was saying the lyrics. I, I didn't even know what I was doing. And she said she could hear me with these lyrics. And, uh, Can you and, imagine that? Yeah, right. It's insane. <laughs> and, and not only that, but my wife, um, and actually she was so instructive to me that we were onto something because um, when I first got her an iPod, um, and this was after August had gotten me an iPod. I got her an iPod, and I put my music catalog on it, and there was 8,000 and some songs, and I don't know, 12, 1,300 artists. And she came back and she said, get this Tupac explicative off my iPod. Oh. And I said, I said, I said, well, I said, no, I said, you should really, no. She said, it's, it's, it's misogynistic, it's violent, it's angry. I said, no, no, I said, you really have to, you know, and I started to break Explain it down to her, it. and she said, no, take it off. So I went on the iTunes, I stripped all of the music off, and so when this project came into my life years later, she had no interest in it. She's like, I think you're crazy. She's like, I can't believe Kenny talked you into doing this. Um, um, it doesn't make any sense, whatever. Good luck with it. And she came to see me. I was, I was working on a production of Fences here in New York. She saw the stack of CDs in the apartment. She rolled her eyes. No interest. And then um, I was into it. I was in the four months of, of listening to the material, and I printed everything up because um, I work in text, of course, and I treated the material like Shakespeare. Like, I really tried hard to preserve all the lyrical structure and not cut anything except for autobiography and anything that put us in the 90s, because I knew I wanted it to be a contemporary story. So I worked really hard, and, and, you know, I was breaking it up, and I sort of had an idea, and I had to write a treatment, and we were moving, and finally one morning she goes, all right, she's like, what's going on with this Tupac stuff, explicative, you right. know? And I said, you really want to know? And she said... 
Sure, she rolled her eyes and poured a cup of coffee, and I got my iPod and plugged it into the radio in the kitchen. And um, I sat down, and for the first time, I went through the story. So I had never, I hadn't, I hadn't written anything cohesive. I'd written p- pieces of it all over, but I hadn't really put it together. So I sat down, and I said, well, I said, it begins with a blank stage, because I said, everybody's going to come with a lot of ideas of what this is. So my first gesture is, my own middle finger gesture is, you come into this, and it's a blank stage. You don't know what it is. And the reality of the play is going to create itself in the experience. And I said, well, it begins, I said, with this guitar refrain, and the jail cell begins to lower, and you see a man in an orange jumpsuit, and then he begins to draw, and the world comes to life. And I'm talking this through, and I'm playing my block, the opening number. And as I'm talking, I totally, she drops out of my focus because I'm putting the story together for the first time. So I'm going through, and I'm just talking. I'm talking for maybe an hour and a half because I, at that time, I would say about 12 numbers that are still in the piece, like the architecture of the piece is the same as it was. And I'm, I'm working through the story, and I get to the end of the finale, and, and for the first time I look over at her, and she's, her, she has tears streaming down her face. Her face is wet with tears. And she goes, oh, my God. She said, Tupac is a genius. She said, Tupac. She's like, this is extraordinary. He's like Shakespeare. And that's, Voila. that's the moment I said, ah, I said, I said, I think I'm on to something with a way to frame this in a which is the thing. Which is the thing. If you take the time to hear me, right? Maybe you could learn to cheer me. Right. You know, there's no need for you to, to fear, fear me. me. If you take the time to hear me, maybe you could learn to cheer me. There's so many people who are turned off by by anger initially, like, oh, I can't take it. This angry black man, right. I can't take it, and and they throw, you know, this this canopy of of anger over a whole world of expression never taking the time to actually see what's under the hood and be critical and be critical and realize what's there what's truly there you know and uh, and it's the same mistake that i could make you know turning on country music and go oh, i just can't take the twang absolutely you know and not realizing some of the great singer songwriter you know that's going into it if i can't get beyond that first layer it's my loss mm. Mm. you know which is why America owes it to itself. You ain't doing Tupac no favors. Right, right. Which is why America owes it to itself, you know, to see why one of its sons is being revered on Broadway. Hmm. And why was he so angry? Yeah. Or or passionate. Or passionate. passionate because because passionate, it's because yeah. it's not at the end of the day, Tupac you know, the anger that Tupac felt, you know, like when Tupac addressed racism and stuff like that, he addressed it with love and clarity. You know, there was no anger there, really. He expressed it with love, passion, and clarity. The anger that Tupac expressed had to do with the sort of betrayal that he faced in his personal life that came from something that may have been instigated by the powers that be, but that manifested through people that looked a lot like him. But actually, something Saul said earlier resonated with me because it's not its not just the anger. I think that that's the yeah. simple. He's not writing... There's a um, something... I can't recall now whether he said this or it's from one of the poems, but I put it as the um, I put it in the script, and it was on my wall the whole time I wrote it. And Tupac said, um, "Every every revolutionary act is an act of love," and I felt love in in all of that music. And so with, within all of that, I felt love, like even in Thug Mansion when he said, "Can you please explain why they can't stand us?" Yeah, like I mean that makes me yeah. I mean that, like when I'm writing, that made me cry. I heard, I heard him say that. Yeah. Can you please explain why they can't stand us? And like, who's they? 
Like, you know. Who's they? Oh, who is they? Who oh, is they? Well, White said, America. He, said, he uh, says, will I survive all the fights in the darkness? Trouble sparks. They say that home is where the heart is, dear departed. I shed tattooed tears and couldn't sleep good for multiple years. Witness peers catch gunshots. Nobody cares. Seen the politicians ban us. They'd rather see us locked in chains. Please explain why they can't stand us. Is there a way for me to change? Or am I just a victim of things I did to maintain? I need a spot to rest my head. Come on. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, yeah. it's crazy. Crazy, all the stuff. When you take the time to go through yeah. Tupac's lyrics, you realize, you know, that that th the idea of the 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 word thug that he had branded on him, you know, thug life being an acronym meaning, you know, the hate you give little infants f's everyone is so different from the branded yes. idea of thug that's running rampant through the idea of hip hop right now. You know, like it's he, he was not talking about. You know, uh, killing uh, each other and uh, shooting each killing other. Killing each and... other, selling, you know, like when he talked about selling drugs, he was very clear, you know, like he was very clear on his position of selling drugs. He wasn't trying to create, you know, like step by step process of how to like fly birds from the south and how to get rich quick off of selling drugs. Right. You know, he realized that, you know, the person who's going in on that is basically collaborating with the FBI yes. or CIA because yes. they're playing the role that they want you to play. You know, um, and and so like he had a whole different perspective. He had he was not talking about including you know, his mother being uh, uh, on drugs for a exactly, while. Exactly, exactly, and yeah. not coming up with necessarily a a solution to all of these. Just at least. And his solution was not, you know, get a private jet, get a Maybach, and 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 then start a liquor company. His right. solution was speak truth to power. Right, right. I mean, he said, um, um, you know, this the the show is not about him, but I did steep myself in as much interviews, as much first-hand material because he's my collaborator, whether he's rolling in his grave right now uh, because <laughs> I, I can't say, but it, um, it, I wanted to know his ideas and attitudes about life. And, you know, I also had to put myself into this, but, but have this conversation with him. And, I, you know, several things he said in interviews guided me. Like, for instance, I remember seeing an interview and he says, uh, um, he says, it's, and it's in the lyrics actually. But he said, nobody cries when they die. And I just remember just writing. I was, I was just listening. I wrote, they will in this musical, you know. And so the musical is built by, you shed tears for, you know, people can shed tears over the the quote, the innocent, the guy who fixes cars and comic books. You can sort of rally tears around that. But what I don't think audience will expect is that guy in the orange jumpsuit that they're going to shed tears, and and they do, they do every mm -hmm. night, and that's satisfying uh, to me. Um, and another thing he said, he said, I didn't, you know, I didn't invent thug life. He said, I just diagnosed it. I mean, he famously said that. And it's like, it's there. And he's just putting out there and all of the contradictory and or apparent contradictions. But there's a richness to that. And um, one of the numbers that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm proud of dialectically is when you take I get around and it comes out of the attitudes and the guys and everything. And it's a, it's a production number and people are having mm -hmm. fun. And then he's got a response. And then the women response with keep your head up or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I love that because it's yeah. just there's a fullness. And this was coming from one artist. I mean, it's again, he I was dead at 26. Exactly. So when did he write it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so the material to me, it's like I'm I love it more every day, which is yeah, amazing. Me I mean, I love it. I love it. I love hearing the piece. I love his stuff more and more and more because it's just it's it's endless. It's like it's like I find Shakespeare um, or Bob Marley or yeah. Nina Simone or Fela Kuti, you know, or, you know, like it has that same resonance. It, you know, you can feel you can feel his heart in it like you feel John Lennon's heart in in Imagine All the People or God. Right. You know what Absolutely. I'm like, yeah. You can you can feel it. We're running out of time. So I want to. Um 
ask, is there any aspect that you I haven't talked about that we want to go over? What's what's crazy about about the play is is how entertaining Absolutely. it is, how how full of laughter, dance, and and all of these other things, you know, come together with the politics Absolutely. of the piece, Absolutely. you know, to bring about a very well rounded you know evening and experience. It's it it's it's not. It's a well put together show, Todd. I must say. So, Thank Todd, you. let Thank me you. ask you then, Todd, what do you want people to come away with in twenty years and say about Holly if you hear me? In 20 years, I hope they say it's a great tragedy that is as socially relevant as My Fair Lady. That's what I would love in my heart. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's what that's what I would love. I would love it to be totally socially irrelevant one day as a piece of a time in our history. Um, I don't see that happening, but but I do, you know. But yet I do have hope. It's like uh, in our show, it's like we get down to a message like peace is never far. I think that that. At least guides me as ours. It's that far that's like, okay, it's not now, but the nihilism, the fight the nihilism is that it's it's an attitude that in spite of this world we have, we still have, we have artists, we have people like Saul Williams who is, it's funny, as, uh, and I can say this, as I'm sitting here listening to Saul describe Tupac, I'm thinking about Saul. Like, you can't imagine what an extraordinary honor it is for me to have him in this piece and bring not only a performance i mean he's a performer but he also brings so much integrity and scope and reach as an artist as a man as a poet and so many things as he describes tupac is the way i feel about him i'd like to thank my guests today saul williams and todd kreidler holler if you hear me is running at the palace theater more information at hollerifyouhearme.com. I'd also like to thank my producer, Dan Murphy, and special thanks to Chris Williams and Veronica Volk. Stay with WFUV for Cityscape with George Bonarchy. That's next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Janet.